Anywho, this is the fourth and last, okay? So you guys can go back to normal breathing, I hope. Hopefully this series has been worth it. Actually, you look at your scriptural reference, you see just how much scripture is condensed when it's brought in using that, the text of the book on the Christ life and stereo. You see just how much is being condensed and brought in a linear fashion. It helps. The timeline, too, helps you to kind of see what's going on and, and what window because there there's a lot of stuff going on. Your, your apostles and, well, your gospel writers, let me put it that way. Which one of the gospels is not written by an apostle? <laughs> Mark, 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 Mark? Yes, Mark. Written by whom? John Mark. Who do we know John Mark from? Book of Acts, Paul, Barnabas. Barnabas is, is his uncle. Yeah, cousin, uncle, cousin, somewhere. Family. All right, there we go. That cheated. Uh, so John Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, and he wrote it based on what? This is extra credit. Don't worry about it. It's not, you're not going to be, do I? Peter, yeah. It was, he basically codified Peter's teaching. So you're getting from that angle what, what Peter taught, and he locked it in for us to actually know and see what Peter wrote, or as Peter taught, not wrote. So, I love John Mark. If you've ever studied John Mark, I would say drink a lot of coffee, get a lot of sleep, because you're going to move it. I love how many times he goes along, and just the baptism alone, you read the other Gospels, and you talk about, John teaching everything, and the baptism, and Jesus came up out of the water, and God said, and the Spirit descended, and then he was led away into the wilderness, and then Satan did this, this, this. You know what Mark says? Came up out of the water, everything, led away in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, Galilee. How do we get here? Are we teleporting now with Mark? That's how fast he moves. He's going to give you a very specific angle in what he's, what he's driving it's a great book to study because you're going to see Christ's ministry technically through Peter's eyes and understanding, but in a very condensed, fast mover. And there's some parts, well, he's that fun one that we had last week, remember? About the guy getting the, his sheet torn off him and runs away from the arrest of Jesus naked. You're kind of going... Why was Peter teaching that one? You, know, you just, you, you go on. So, <laughs> this has been fun for me, even though I'm pretty sure you're probably going, I have a headache, you know, we've moved so quickly. So, but anyway, this is the fourth of our walk with Jesus to the cross. Let me pray and we'll get it. And the reason I'm starting is because I get a boogie back to church and do the second annual meeting. So, let me pray. Father God, it's almost hard to imagine how fast we've gone through from the Last Supper and we end up today at the cross, but we're just talking 10 hours. And we've been going through it quickly, but you went through it in flesh in just a constant attack against you 
men himself not knowing that you were present before them and they disregarded the fact that you were the creator God. Help us not do that in our own lives, in our daily lives, that we do not disregard you, that we see you working in us and and seek you to guide us and direct us. Father, we thank you for your care. And beyond anything else, the sacrifice of your son that you made provision for our sin. God, we love you and again thank you for that care that you continually have for us in Jesus. Amen. So last week we ended with Pilate condemning Christ to die by crucifixion. So we are now Friday, 9 a.m. to noon. Jesus has now gone through cruel, illegal trials. He is without sleep. He has been spit upon, punched, disgraced, and humiliated. He's been flogged almost to the point of death, and with all that, he will walk from the praetorium to the place of crucifixion. So Matthew and Mark record for us, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus and led him away into the court that is called the praetorium, and they summoned together their whole battalion to confront him. And when they had stopped him, they clothed him with purple and placed him around, placed around him, a crimson cloak, and plating a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and placed a reed in his right hand and bowing their knees in homage before him, kept mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat upon him and took the reed and struck him on his head. And after mocking him, they stripped him of the cloak, the purple garments, and put on him his own clothing and led him out to crucify him. Scene's hard to imagine. It's hard to put your, your thoughts in. To put a purple robe and a red cape around him. Seated him with a stick, a staff, like he's royalty. And then taking the stick, they beat him on, on the head where the crown of thorns is already pressed in. They bow before him in worship, fake worship, false worship, mocking him, spitting on him. After they had their fun, they stripped him again, putting on his own clothes and let him out. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John now record that at, and he went forth bearing his own cross. But as they were proceeding on out, they found a man of Cyrene who was passing by, Simon by name, the father of Alexander and Rufus, coming in from the country. Him they seized and laid on him the cross and compelled him to bear it behind Jesus. What humiliation. For a convicted prisoner to be led through the streets of Jerusalem carrying his own cross, his own murder weapon. Lack of sleep, scourging and beatings removed all available energy and Jesus struggled to carry the cross So they grabbed an individual carrying the cross for Jesus. Here's an ironic thought that Dawson brought up in the study. He says, no doubt the soldiers thought it was a big joke to force one Jew to carry the cross of another Jew whom the nation had condemned. 
What irony. What, what sick thoughts. Luke in 23, 27 through 31 records for us, a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless woman, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things, when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Luke records here, not everyone in Jerusalem was against Jesus or opposed to him, but they were not disciples of Jesus. These women had genuine sympathy for Jesus as for a human being going to their death. They were sympathetic to that understanding. But Jesus called them daughters of Jerusalem, meaning that they were those who simply were from Jerusalem, nothing deeper. He calls them to not weep for him, but for themselves and for the generations of children after them. Why? What, what is Jesus doing? Again, you see Jesus. It's not about him. It's about everyone else. His constant desire is to minister to all those, to call them to salvation, to himself. And for these women and the generations of children after, as with Judas, Judas is calling out to them to repent of their sin and follow him as their Messiah. The coming judgment, the first destruction will be in Jerusalem, 70 A.D., and yet another longer look during the time of the period of the tribulation. Happy will the childless mothers be, for they will not see their children suffer through destruction. It will be a horrible time as they will desire for the mountains to fall on them and to be covered by the hills. That statement's coming from Hosea 10.8. The divine judgment will be severe. William Hendrickson, in his commentary on Luke, climaxed it this way, but for the impenitent, the final cry of anguish will be the most hopeless of all. Jesus ends this with a common proverb. The green wood is nourished and, and represents Jesus, while the dry wood is the fate of the non-believer. If God did not spare Jesus the green tree, the flourishing tree, how much greater will the wrath of God be on those who turn from salvation, the dry. Sentenced to die as a criminal with other criminals, we now see all four Gospels coming together with this event, and two others also who were evildoers were led away with him to be put to death. And when they brought him to the place called the Skull, which in in Hebrew is called Golgotha, they offered him vinegar to drink, mixed with myrrh. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. There they crucified him, and it was about the sixth hour. The vinegar drink was a crude painkiller, making it easier for those who crucify to be dealing with the victim much easier, more sedated. 
Yet Jesus refused. He bore the indescribable suffering on the cross. He bore our sin on him. There was nothing that was going to lighten or soften the load of what Christ carried on the cross and what he went through. Every bit of that was to be fully felt. Crucifixion is an execution process that just cannot be described. I can't even fathom it in my I try to image it in my head, and I'm, I, I understand it anatomically. I understand it medically. I just don't understand it. It's beyond thinking. The nails do their damage in the joints, muscle, and tendons. In the area of the nails, there is inflammation and the start of infection. The whole body wreathes in pain, and for a time the victim will try to stand up on the nail. And when they're not able to deal with the pain in the feet, they then hang on the nails in the wrist. I know a lot of times you see pictures where you see the nail in the palm. That doesn't make sense, does it? Because when they drop him into the hole, what's going to happen? It's going to tear right out. So it's in this section of the joint. Very well bonded, very tight, will hold him there. And the stretched chest muscles and diaphragm fatigue, so it's difficult to breathe. And the only relief is to stand again on the nail and the feet. That's the process of the up and the down and the up and the down. This continues until the body is fatigued to the point where the process cannot continue and suffocation will then occur. The process usually takes about three days. The prophet Isaiah described the suffering of Jesus in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 5. He says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus speaks to the Father as he continues to care for those around him. Luke 23:34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The soldiers knew that they were crucifying an innocent man. But they did not know that they were killing God in flesh. And in the midst of the crucifixion, Jesus forgives. Jesus intercedes. The onlooker, Jesus was just another criminal. The Gospels again record that and with him they crucified the evildoers, two robbers, one on either side, and Jesus between them. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. You look at those three crosses and you see transgressors receiving what they deserved. Or do you? Jesus was numbered with transgressors. Pilate then placed the ruling of judgment above the head of Jesus. One last dig for Pilate against the Jews. Matthew, Mark, and John record, and Pilate also wrote an inscription that they put on the cross above his head, and this accusation was written, This is the Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many, therefore, of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. 
you got any questions, Pilate was making sure everyone had it. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews. But he said, But he said that I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. It's done. The Jews pushed and manipulated Pilate to crucify Jesus, and Pilate had the final pushback on them. Unbeknownst to Pilate, what he wrote was God glorifying Jesus Christ, lifting him. Jesus' clothes are now divided amongst the soldiers. Mark and John record the event. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts. To each soldier apart, but without the tunic. Casting lots as to what part each should take, but the tunic was seamless, woven from the top throughout. So they said to each other, hmm, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled, which says they divided my garments among themselves and for my raiment they cast lots. Psalm 22:18. David predicted that a thousand years prior before the soldiers acted. This was the normal custom for the soldiers to divide the clothing of those that they crucified as to them. They were as good as dead to these soldiers. So who cares? Got to get something out of the deal. The tunic <clears throat> was too nice to destroy by dividing it so they gambled to see who would get the piece untorn. We move Friday, noon to three. As Jesus hangs on the cross, the abuse continues, and yet we see the deep, true love of God as Christ showed he was to all. Again, all four Gospels record, these things, therefore, the soldiers did, and sitting down, they kept guard of him there, and the people stood beholding the sight. And those passing by kept railing at him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. And if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. You know, they did not understand what Jesus said previously concerning his death, burial, and resurrection is recorded in John 2, 19 through 21, that the temple he was talking about was himself. Insult after insult continued against Jesus. He was the Son of God, but the Father's plan was not for Jesus to come down off the cross, but to remain there and take our sin on himself, to die for us to pay for our sin. If the insults of the common crowd were not enough, in come the religious leaders and their foul existence. Again, the, the gospel writers all record, and likewise also the chief priests mocking him to one another with the scribes and elders, said, he saved others. Himself, <laughs> he cannot save. Let him save himself. Oh, if he is the Christ, the chosen one of God. 
if he is the king of Israel, let the Messiah, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. And if he desires him, for he said, I am the Son of God. You can almost imagine the tone of the voice, the attitude, the arrogance. Jesus helped others, true. But they do not understand that remaining on the cross is more than helping some, but redeeming them to himself. The cross is required. It is demanded by God to pay for man's sin. They imply that Jesus was too weak to help himself. If he could help others, why can he not help himself? Huh, he must not be God. They even had the audacity to say that if he would come down from the cross, they would believe. Really? We all remember the dialogue in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, where the rich man is talking to Abraham, trying to get someone to tell his brothers the truth about hell, get someone to come back from the dead to tell them. But Abraham says they will not believe. Abraham's reply is in Luke 16:31, and he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone raises from the dead. Hmm, interesting statement. Jesus came to save that which was lost, and right next to him was a man lost at the doorsteps of hell. The crowd, the soldiers, the religious leaders, and even one criminal on one side of Jesus was hurling insults. He was hoping that Jesus would get down off the cross and save them all. Matthew and Luke record, Now the robbers also who were crucified with him began to reproach him in the same manner. One of the hanged evildoers kept on railing at him, saying, If you are the Messiah, save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving due reward for our deed. But this man did nothing amiss. And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Verily I say to you, today shall you be with me in paradise. And it was about twelve noon. See, one criminal wanted to be saved from the cross, but one sought to be saved for his sin, confessing that he was receiving the just penalty for his transgression. He reached out to Jesus in repentance. He saw himself a sinner, while the onlooking crowd and religious leaders saw themselves as righteous, not needing salvation. He saw Jesus as the Messiah and desired to be in the kingdom with Jesus. A man soon to die hears that when he dies, he will be with Jesus in the kingdom. It is clear that Paul is telling the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians 5.8, We are confident 
I say and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. I think that's a statement all of us are always constantly saying. Jesus' love and care while on the cross is shown to his earthly mother. John 19, 25 through 27 records this most tender moment. And it, it's unbelievable. Again, you, you just picture what's happening around. There's cursing. There's vile language. There's all kinds of attitudes going on. But yet, through all of this, Jesus is focused with tender care. Is he suffering? Yes. Is he in excruciating pain? Yes. Is he compassionate? Yes. Starting in verse 25, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, talking to John, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Mary, John, and a few women were there at the cross. Jesus, being the firstborn son of Mary, was responsible for caring for her or arranging for her care when he was gone. Sensitive to the needs of his mother, he asks John to take his place in caring for her. What trust Jesus had in John. The final act comes. The darkest hour in history is about to arrive, yet it brings with it the most radiant time to sinful man. At noon, God caused a deep darkness to fall on the land, enunciating the darkness of sin and the weight of sin placed on Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Isaiah 53.6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For three long hours, Jesus silently endured this indescribable agony, completely alone. Finally, in utter pain and loneliness, Jesus could not conceal his heartbreak any longer. He cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The crowd misunderstood who Jesus was crying out to and they thought that he was calling out for Elijah. Matthew, Mark, and John help us to see the greater depth of the picture and some of those standing there when they heard it said, Behold, this man is calling Elijah. Upon this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now ended, said, The scripture might be fulfilled, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was standing there, and one of them ran at once, and taking a sponge and filling it with wine, put it on the hyssop stalk and brought it to his mouth, saying, and the others said, Permit this. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down and save him. 
The crowd did not want Jesus to have any relief from his parched lips, but to see if Elijah would save him. Yet the soldier persisted to provide the sour wine. The final shout of triumph. Matthew, Luke, and John give us the final picture. And Jesus, therefore, on receiving the wine, cried out again with a loud voice, It is finished. He bowed his head and said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said these things, he yielded up his spirit. Jesus Christ, who was sinless, endured the horror of bearing all our sin on the cross and, therefore, the rejection of God at the same time. He was forsaken by the Father then so that we could enjoy the Father's love for all eternity. He was rejected by the Father then so that we could be accepted by the Father forever. The dead body of Jesus was now taken down from the cross and buried in a tomb. Did Jesus pay for sin? Was the Father satisfied with the sacrifice of his Son? That's a critical issue. If it was just a guy dying on a cross, you got nothing. There's no payment. It, it just ends there. Story ends, close the book, we go home. Yes. The father was satisfied. Three days later, Jesus rose from the tomb, giving evidence and declaring that Jesus Christ is God and that the sacrifice satisfied the penalty of sin. For now there remains the free gift of salvation to any who are called and surrender their whole lives to Jesus. You understand the significance of the resurrection? If you just have the death, you just have the death. But the resurrection says the Father is satisfied with the sacrifice that was given, that the payment was complete, and it is a total payment, and therefore, raising him from the dead and exalting him back means it's more than just finished here, it's finished for all of eternity. And Jesus sits next to the Father, and the amazing part is, with us who are saved, the more exciting part is we are also co-ascended and co-seated with Jesus, with the Father. I know it's hard to imagine because you and I look at our sinful nature, our sinful self, and we go, you know, as we are declared by the Father, we're declared perfect. And you and I look in the mirror and go, uh-uh, not me. But because of what Christ did on the cross, the total payment, when the Father sees us through Christ, we are, what? Perfect, righteous. Now, what are you and I looking at every day? It's the practical righteousness, right? That is why when Steve this morning said that when... When we sin, what do we naturally do? As a true believer, we naturally confess our sin, for he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins. But that's all based on what Christ did on the cross. It's not anything that we have done. 
but it's all at Christ. It's a theological funny term that we use. But we say that the, the work of Christ on the cross is a total efficacious work. I know, big words, whatever. It really means it has its absolute total effect on us. It's not missing a piece. It's not something where we've got to do. And see, the other thing that kind of frustrates me, and I remember in the 60s and 70s, we used to wear like crosses a lot. I don't, any, I don't know why. I just, I just stopped, whatever. But we were wearing an execution device. It would be almost like you're wearing a guillotine. A nice guillotine. Oh, I loved it. I think it's great. Isn't it beautiful? It's weird. But it was a symbol that reverted and changed to say, no, this is where redemption happened. But there's no body on the cross. He's risen. It's paid for completely. And that's the beauty. So why does Romans 6.23 just blow up in our minds all the time when we think through it? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gift. Why? Because it's a total paid gift. You and I know at Christmas we don't get our gift and go to the giver and go, let's see, how much do I owe you for that, right? Well, let's not do that with our salvation. But freely accept that gift and then what? Live a life obedient to the Father. That's exactly what Steve was saying this morning. You know that you're a true believer because why? You desire to be and you seek to be obedient. That's the difference between a believer and a non-believer. A non-believer is not going to care about being obedient to God. A believer says, I owe it all. It, it, my whole life. What does Paul say? I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, What? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship, really means what? Reasonable service of worship means that's where we start. That's the ground level. We are a living sacrifice the minute we're saved. That's where it's at. That's what Christ did on the cross. That is the work of the love of God shed abroad. All we have to do is surrender our complete life to him. The most horrific event in history. But for us as believers, the most glorious event that we always look our life back to and go, because of Jesus, I live. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts. We are very quick to forget. We're quick to kind of move away from things. We don't centralize what Christ did on the cross so much. It, it, we have to be reminded. You reminded us continually to say every time we gather together and eat and take of the bread and the wine that it is to remember him. It's amazing how 
quickly we do forget or we minimize or we kind of drop it down. We don't cleanly remember the sacrifice given. We don't sometimes understand that that sacrifice was very specific to me, that he died for me. It's something that I do not have deep and present in my life constantly. And if we did, the life that we would live would be much greater. God, help us to have the vibrant remembrance continually of Christ on the cross, the work of Christ on the cross for us, moving through the resurrection and the ascension. Father, we need to continually grow, and we need to be men and women short of our sin, quick to repent, because of what Christ did. We are forgiven. God, help us to be men and women before you to stand before the world, the hateful world, no matter what we go through, what insults we may receive, or nothing compared to what Christ received. But God, give us strength to persevere, to continue forward and proclaim the truth the glorious truth that sin is paid for. Again, we thank you for your care and love and compassion for us. We love you and thank you again. In Jesus' name, amen.